0: People that supported him convinced him that he didn't let them down. In fact, um, they, you know, he needs to be in the U.S. Senate, and they were very proud of the race that he ran. Their hard-fought campaign
1: and their ability to move beyond it became a part of both of their brands.
2: I think that, like, the verdict was in a long time ago. It's fantastic. It drives
3: up turnout. It is so much easier for all of us. I think you will see a lot of them looking back and saying, Why do we cling to a way of doing uh, election business that in some ways hasn't changed since the fifth century BC?
4: Election night in January 1996 ended quickly and unexpectedly. Going into the evening, Both campaigns and many observers expected Oregon Senate President Gordon Smith, the Republican nominee, to beat Congressman Ron Wyden, the Democratic candidate. It didn't turn out that way, and Ron Wyden became the newest U.S. senator from the state of Oregon, beating Gordon Smith in a very close race, 47.78% to 46.26%. Since it was a special election to fill the seat vacated by the resignation of Bob Packwood, it was the only race on the ballot. That led to a quick ballot count and a call of the race by the media and others. For Oregon Secretary of State Phil Keesling, the outcome was less important than his bigger goal, to demonstrate that an all vote by mail election was feasible for every election in the state. I'm Kevin Curry, And on this fourth and final episode of the first season, we revisit the moment that Gordon Smith grapples with another opportunity to pursue a seat in the U.S. Senate. His decision leads to an unlikely partnership. Phil Kiesling continues his efforts to make every Oregon election vote by mail, and we reflect on what vote by mail has meant for Oregon over the past 25 years. The day after Election Day dawned early for the Gordon Smith campaign, They had lost an extremely close race, and their candidate had already expressed no desire to do it again. Lori Hardwick, finance director for the Smith campaign, and Dan Levy, the campaign manager, described the day after and the unique opportunity Gordon Smith found himself presented with.
0: Well, close race and um, sad day because everybody had worked hard for, you know, a very short period of time. I'm really hard work for a very short period of time. And I think we were all extraordinarily disappointed.
1: Early the next morning, like 7 a.m., right? And we were up late and, and Gordon you know, hadn't hardly slept. The phone in Gordon's room rang, the bedside phone in the hotel. It was Senator Hatfield. Senator Hatfield is calling Gordon to tell him, he's the first person he's gonna tell, he's not gonna run again. He's not going to run again. This is January of 1996. And that Gordon really should think about running again.
0: And the next day, as I head into the office after a long night, I start getting phone calls from, you know, our finance committee guys saying, hey, so what now? Like, how's it going to work? There's, you know, potentially another seat that's going to happen. What's Gordon, what would Gordon do? You know, and I'm like, I, you know. I don't know, we, can we just take a breather here, right?
1: And Gordon tells the story better than I do, but his eyes are bleary, he's tired, and he's, you know, borderline crying. And here's Senator Hatfield reading stories to Gordon about Abraham Lincoln and about how, you know, Abraham Lincoln ran for like six or seven different offices and lost before he ultimately became president. And, uh, and he pledged to Gordon that he'd, he'd campaign hard for him, he'd support him. But that Gordon really should think about you know, running again um and uh it 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 revealed something about Senator Hatfield that doesn't get reported a lot um he was a he was a partisan i mean he wanted his seat to be uh, one he wanted to be succeeded by a republican um and he'd come to i think appreciate gordon um and gotten to know him a little bit um and so uh that's an interesting part of Hatfield's personality that gets lost in his the imagery of his and the accuracy of his bipartisan and statesmanlike and maverick like approach to things
0: I mean everybody was so invested in you know Gordon more than they were even the seat to be honest that um uh they were very convincing to him the the run after um about deciding to run. Because I think he was, he, I think putting himself out there in that way, you don't know what's going to happen because he'd never done it before. But you've put yourself out in front of the whole state, you, your family, and everything. And then to lose, his impression was, because I remember asking him, he says, I feel like I've let everybody down, right? And that's what made him sad about the race and really made it hard for him to consider running again because I think he didn't want to let people down. But I think um, people that supported him convinced him that he didn't let them down. In fact, um, they, you know, he needs to be in the U.S. Senate. And they were very proud of the race that he ran ran, and um, proud to have been associated with him. And so I think that helped uh, him end up making a decision to run again for the U.S. Senate and then eventually win.
4: As the Oregon Senate president, there was no time to rest for Gordon Smith and his staff. Following his call from Senator Hatfield, Smith and his team had to go to the state capitol in Salem to gavel in a one-day special session. If Gordon Smith was going to take advantage of the advanced notice from Hatfield, he would need to make his decision relatively quickly.
1: The other thing that happened that next day is there was a special session of the legislature that we had organized and called and was going to be held that day to pass the funding measure for light rail in Clackamas County that had been left undone in the previous session. And so here we are the morning after we lose the election, Gordon and I and a couple of the staff have to go back down to Salem. You know, all we want to do is hide in our hotel rooms and lick our wounds. Here we have to go down to the state capitol surrounded by everybody, all the legislators, the media, uh, you know, and Gordon has to have a stiff upper lip. He gavels the session in before the legislative committees are going to meet. And Randy Miller, a state senator, came into our office and said, let's get out of here. And uh, the three of us went, I remember we went to the original pancake house, had breakfast, And then Randy took us to the movies in the downtown theater in downtown Salem. I don't remember what movie we saw, but we just had to get the hell out of the Capitol. And we did. We watched the movies, came back to the Capitol. The next day or later that afternoon, we had the votes for the light rail package, uh, cast and vote gaveled out, and that was it. Uh, And then Gordon left to to go to Arizona uh, and get the hell out of Oregon for a while. And oddly enough, within 24 hours the plotting and the scheming for the next race began because of course we had the heads up that Senator Hatfield was gonna be retiring, even though he didn't announce it for another couple weeks. And, the, and the, the deadline, the filing deadline for that race was rapidly approaching. Uh, it's you know the second week of March. So we really only had about six weeks for candidates in both sides to decide who was gonna run, how was it gonna be conducted, and would Gordon run again. Which, of course, he did.
4: Once the decision was made, there were pros and cons to running a second campaign so close to the first one.
0: Well, harder personally and uh, maybe easier as a campaign. But, but semi-horrifying because Tom Brugger had a lot of money and Gordon had a lot of money too, but had spent a lot of his money, right? And it hadn't gotten paid back. So he was $2 million in debt at the end of the Wyden-Smith race. And um, so it was going to all come down to the raising part. So um, that was sort of, you know, the conversation he had with the donors. Why, you know, when push came to shove, he sort of said, but I'm going to need you guys to really step up more significantly. Not that they didn't before, but that he wasn't, you know, going to be able to put more money into the race, really.
1: And I will tell you, in the subsequent race that he ran... Senator Hatfield really put his shoulder to the wheel. I mean, he did anything we asked. He made fundraising phone calls. I mean, I remember him speaking at, at rallies and different things where I was really kind of struck. I was like, God, this guy is doesn't want to lose uh, and doesn't want his seat to be won by a Democrat.
0: In some ways, because of the loss, you're also, you know, as or more hungry and you would learned a lot of lessons, Right. Winning is one thing, and winning is awesome, but you don't learn as much when you win as when you lose, right? So I think the things that we won in, in a, a defeat helped us win the second time around.
4: Smith would face nominal competition in the Republican primary, his main opponent being Lon Mabon of the Oregon Citizens Alliance. The matchup was beneficial, however, because it gave Smith the opportunity to distance himself from the more right-wing organization, which had endorsed him in the last general election. He defeated Mabon easily and was able to stay near the center during a Republican primary. In the general election, Gordon Smith faced Tom Bruguer, another Oregon businessman. The tables were turned as Bruguer spent a large chunk of his own money, over $800,000 in the Democratic primary alone, while Smith had to lean more heavily on donors for support. Gordon Smith's redemption was complete when he defeated Bruguere by over 50,000 votes. It set up one of the more interesting political partnerships in Oregon history. Smith would now go serve side-by-side with Ron Wyden, two politicians who just 10 months earlier had gone blow to blow. Both, however, set aside any previous animosity and embraced service to Oregon. It was unique within the United States Senate. Brian Clem, who went on to work for Senator Wyden following his role as deputy campaign manager, describes what happened.
2: You know, they had been bitter enemies, as I said. They didn't know each other personally. They duped it out brutally. Uh, The Smith people, I think, felt probably that, you know, it was disingenuous to say you had been positive when your your, your team over here, the teams are just still beating me up. So there was no, you know— no good feelings about the whole positive campaign thing that would that had you know might may have developed because they didn't they didn't buy it and then um Smith runs against Brugher or vice versa Brugher and Smith compete for Hatfield's seat I, I'm sure Ron supported Brugher at the time and so then we get to but Gordon won and now they're serving together and authentically they just literally broke bread together at a meal, and just buried the hatchet. Like, I, no one's ever said what what that healing process was like. Did they go at each other for a while and needle each other? All we know as staff is they came out of it, and he's like, he is a great guy, and we can work with him.
4: Dan Levy and Lori Hardwick from the Smith campaign both recognize the unique nature of the relationship for both the senators and for
1: Oregon. And then, of course, you know, the postscript is, Gordon wins. Gordon and Wyden become close colleagues. They do joint town halls together. And in fact, their their hard-fought campaign and their ability to move beyond it became a part of both of their brands uh, in the Senate and here in Oregon um, until Gordon was defeated in 2008, which I think had a lot more to do with the national trend and the voter registration that was boosted from Obama and other than it did people being really dissatisfied with Gordon. Um, and I think that kind of ended the, the idea that Oregon was a swing state. I think if, if there was ever a sense that Oregon was a swing state, that ended in 2008 when, when uh, it probably ended sooner than that, but for certainly in 2008 with, with Gordon's loss to, to Merkley.
0: They end up being a good team. Um, and that's in part because, you know, Gordon uh, really sort of forced that issue. He he believed that, you know, Oregon was not a, not a place where, uh, you know, that was super highly partisanly charged and that, um, you know, people should work together uh, as opposed to, you know, opposing each other. And so they had, you know, breakfast all the time and did their thing. There were plenty of things they didn't agree on, but... Personally, they, you know, got to know each other and understood each other, and, you know, by doing that. And I think that was a very valuable thing for our state.
4: There was, of course, some political calculation that went into the decision to work together. Brian Clem describes how it benefited both senators and how not all staff were on board.
2: And frankly, it was in Gordon's interest, I think, probably initially more than Ron's, because Oregon's a blue state. So to get that that credibility from Ron after having lost to Ron was helpful. And some of our more partisan political people are like, Oh, I don't know. I mean, what if, you know, someone wants to run against him? I think Bill Bradbury ran against him the next time, you know, how do we play that? And Ron's like, I don't care. Like he is a good person. And, and Gordon told his staff, the same thing. Like, even if we're giving him some cover, you know, he's the next one up because we had um, in 98, we had to run again against John Lim and so, so Gordon's people could argue, well, don't give him any cover by, you know, doing all this friendly Wyden-Smiths ice cream social stuff. And neither of them would have any of it.
4: Jeff Mapes, a longtime reporter for The Oregonian, who now covers politics for Oregon Public Broadcasting, is a bit more blunt in his assessment of the partnership.
5: It was really a very clever incumbent protection scheme is what it amounted to. And I mean, they, they both were pretty smart on that. And, and of course, Wyden was the first one who had to run for re-election, even though he won the seat. You know, got into the Senate before Smith. He had to run more quickly because Packwood's term was expiring, and the fact that he and Smith were already forging this good relationship was helpful to him. Uh, I think it tended to damp down um, what kind of Republican opposition faced.
4: Still, staff in both offices, including Clem, Hardwick, and Levy, came to appreciate the relationship between their bosses and what that meant for Oregon.
2: And they, I mean, really directly told the staff every issue, every case uh, work uh, issue, every project, you know, for the, whatever, the NOAA facility in Newport or the new National Guard facility in Clackamas, treat them just like part of the Wyden team, include him in everything, every letter we write jointly, see if we can do our bills, sponsor them jointly, you know, find all the common ground you can, and we're going to do town halls together too. And we were just like, huh? Because this was a tough time in politics. I mean, Newt Gingrich had had big battles to get to where he was at, and there wasn't a, you know, make nice with Newt um, element of the Democratic Party. They were like, wanted blood and they were mad at Bill Clinton for trying to start to get along with nude over welfare reform. So it was not an easy thing for partisans to accept that they really actually liked each other and really could actually work together for the betterment of Oregon. But everybody else in the state loved it. It was obvious all the town hall meetings, the phone calls, the letters, and more and more people were becoming non-affiliated at that time. And we were probably up to 20 percent already.
0: You know, having balance really is important, I think, uh, for our state. And, um, you know, we're missing that now.
2: Everybody said that is the way we want Oregon to work. That is exactly what we need. People to put aside the D.C. Gingrich versus Clinton stuff, impeachment, all that stuff that came up in the next year or so. They stuck it out through all of that. You know, and of course they had differences. And I'm sure that Gordon probably had to endorse Lamb and and Ron probably endorsed Bradbury. But we didn't put in great efforts, I don't think, on either of the two sides politically. And, you know, and they had a true, authentic, genuine service to Oregon ethic that um, we absolutely need to to learn how to get back to.
1: Oregon was very well served during that period where you had an urban senator, a rural senator, a Democrat or Republican. So, no matter which party was in the White House, um, so Bush wins in two thousand. And having Gordon, you know, be a, a Republican senator during a, a Republican presidential administration was valuable to the state, just as it is when Clinton was president. Having Wyden in the Senate, so Oregon had its bases covered, um, and uh, and and they worked really well together, um, and. Uh, uh, Oregon was w- was well-served during their overlapping two terms in the U.S. Senate.
2: Ron just has this energy and this ethos that is unmatched. And so the fact that he has been this successful in politics for this long is really no surprise you know, to the staff who are around him and knows how much he loves the job and loves the people and cares. Um, but that campaign and then the way he pivoted really gave me admiration. Um, and like I said, I liked DeFazio. Like, I was a little bit torn on who I was supposed to even vote for, even though I was working for Ron. But but after working for Ron those five years, um, he's just been a great, great person to work for. And I've come to, to get to meet Gordon in other contexts since then. And another fine, you know, fine, fine human being, an Oregonian that was, you know, mischaracterized by the Democrats for a long time. And now we're back to I think, a real sense of who both of those two guys are.
4: Oregon Secretary of State Phil Kiesling had one goal coming out of the 1996 special election. Build on the momentum he created and make vote-by-mail the mechanism for every election in the state of Oregon. Immediately, he was presented with another unique opportunity to demonstrate the viability of vote-by-mail. And for this one, he would partner with a key politician from the other side of the aisle.
3: Yeah. And that was a one time only where I teamed up with my former nemesis, Senator Randy Miller, who was pushing moving Oregon's presidential primary be a standalone in in, in March that year rather than May, because May of 1996 is going to be irrelevant. The uh, you know, race may well be over. It was only the Republicans that had a big race in 96. And, and I think Senator Miller was interested in promoting interest in Oregon and higher turnout. And that's a fine thing. We engineered a, a an arrangement. I talked to secretaries of state in Washington and California. We kind of make it a semi-regional sort of thing. Maybe encourage candidates to come out here. And because we're now doing a second election, well, let's make it as inexpensive as possible. Well, we'll just mail people their ballots. It's simple. There's only one thing in the ballot, the presidential race. <laughs> so I started getting in a fight with with the Democratic National Committee because... We're challenging New Hampshire's vaunted role. So I'm getting called up and saying, well, it's a terrible thing they are doing. I go, why? Well, because people are going to be voting before they vote in New Hampshire because you're sending the ballots out this far in advance and they're going to be casting their ballots beforehand. And I go, well, that'd be true if they were doing mail-out ballots. Yeah, but you're doing it to everybody now, you know, the absentee. And so they didn't like it. The Republicans Candidates didn't know what to do with it because they were also, no, you got to concentrate on New Hampshire, not not Oregon. I think Bob Dole was the only candidate that came out here, okay, and spent half a day, ran no TV ads, okay. Uh, He might have ended up winning. We had a 56% turnout, if I remember correctly, in that Republican presidential primary. We actually beat New Hampshire, (laughs) okay. No one paid any attention, <laughs> because it was such a weird thing. And, and it was a one-time only. It required money from the legislature to, to reimburse the counties for holding this uh, particular special election.
4: Any good feelings coming from the success of the 1996 special election and the 1996 Oregon presidential primary didn't last long. As Phil Keesling geared up to take another run at expanding vote-by-mail during the 1997 Oregon legislative session, the fate of any such effort was made clear. Uh,
3: so losing that election, hard fought. Um, uh, it was a harbinger of what happened in the, in the fall of 96 when Clinton, you know, beats Bob Dole very handily, um, as you recall. Um, uh, that uh, going into the 1997 session, it was made very clear, very explicitly, in a very friendly way, by people like Senate President Brady Adams. No way, no how, no way in hell is this bill ever going to see the light of day. And Phil, you can push and push and push for it. Ain't going to happen. Randy Miller at this time is saying things to the effect of, well, you know. Higher turnout isn't the end-all, be-all. You know, Saddam Hussein just got re-elected in Iraq with ninety-nine percent turnout. You know, and I'm just going, "Wow! <laughs> how, how many one-eighty-degree turns can you make on a particular issue that you championed for more than a decade?" And literally every Republican who a senator who had voted for this bill in uh, uh, in in ninety. Uh, five turned tail, and the fight in '97 came down to the Senate, and uh, and a concurrence vote with House amendments after it got out, and um, it uh, and it was Randy Miller who was the then the majority leader, who just really worked hard to make sure that people who had told us they were supporting of the idea voting no on a procedural motion. And I think we lost it by two votes. We did get some Republican support for it. I think Tom Hart, people like Tom Hartung, um, uh, Washington County, and a few others. You can go back and, and and find the bill. But we, you know, we we did everything we could to to dislodge it from uh, from committee. And uh, and I said we we got it through the House, but then we could not get it through the Senate. And um, Uh, And by this time, Kittsauber is supporting it um, and hoping to get it through, but we just weren't able to pull it off, and that's why we had to then go to an initiative effort.
4: To meet their long-held goal of making vote-by-mail permanent for all Oregon elections, the county clerks across Oregon teamed up with Phil Kiesling to utilize another unique governing tool, the ballot initiative. In Oregon... Anyone with a public policy idea can put that idea up for a vote by collecting a certain number of signatures. This is the route the clerks and Keesling would take to give Oregonians the choice of permanent vote-by-mail. It's a move veteran political reporter Jeff Mapes said was a good one. I'm not,
5: I'm not surprised they went to the initiative after it failed in the legislature. That was a logical next move because I think... There was a feeling, and I'm sure there were a lot of polls at the time, showing that it was very popular with Oregon voters. Uh, I think from the start, Oregonians just seemed to really like it. Uh, I've, I've never seen any poll that indicates, um, you know, any real high level of opposition to it.
4: Despite the popularity of vote by mail, the clerks and their supporters would still need to collect enough signatures to put it on the ballot. Regardless of the issue being promoted, that's no easy feat, which is something Phil Kiesling and the clerks soon found out. A fortunate decision would help them succeed.
3: Yeah, and we also took a principled stand, which was probably politically naive, but uh, it was the county clerks were the ones that that did the um, uh, initiative. They were the chief petitioners on it, Vicki Irvin, thinks might have been Susie Penhollow, uh, a couple of others. And uh, But it was very important to them that we not pay signature gathering, that it done all volunteer, and back then uh, paid signature gathering uh, had been approved by the courts. We used to prohibit it by Oregon law, that Oregon law was declared unconstitutional as an abridgment of free speech. But you had to declare on the petition whether you were doing it all volunteered or whether some petition gatherers were being paid. So you had to disclose it. And they felt very strongly that you should not do it. And, you know, I'm secretary of state at the time. I'm in an office where I have to be a referee about various things. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm fully supporting it, but I'm not, you know, especially actively involved. Um, But they only have 28,000 signatures um, uh, as of, you know, two months ahead of time. And I've gone out on some weekends and, and, um, you know, gathered signatures myself and feel I'm comfortable doing that, but, uh, they need a hundred thousand signatures, uh, to do it. And, um, you know, a number of us talk again on, on our own time and, um, decide that no, we're not going to switch gears and, and pay, but what can we do? And, um, uh, I give a lot of credit to uh, uh, two people, Liz Kaufman, who's still a long time, uh, still a campaign consultant, I think. Um, um, and we had, uh, gosh, she had a fierce disagreement with me about some other issues, um, uh, said some things publicly that were less than less than friendly, but uh, she loved vote by mail, and uh, said she'd like to help. And then Jeremy Wright was the young man she suggested that we bring in to help. And the idea was, let's just mail the petitions to registered voters who have been voting with absentee balance and saying to them, don't you th- wish that you could do it for every election? Those bad Oregon legislators won't let you. We need to put this on the ballot. And we started finding that if we chose carefully demographics and geography, we were getting a very good return rate to the point that it was costing about a half to a third of what we would be paying if we were hiring people to do signature gathering. And we ran these experiments and tests and started just doubling and quadrupling down on the successful uh, test runs. And then someone suggested, well, why don't we put a contribution envelope in, in these so people could help the campaign by giving 5 or $20 um, or more. And suddenly we're finding that when you count up the contributions, it's practically paying for itself. We'll keep doing it. We also got a lot of support from editorial boards uh, saying, you know, this is an all-volunteer effort. Um, this is a good thing. Here's how to get your petition. And, um, uh, and in the last 60 days of the campaign, we ended up uh, getting more than enough signatures to get it on the ballot. And when it then finally gets to the ballot, it ends up passing, I think, 69 to 31 percent in all 36 counties. And Democrats, Republicans and none of the above, so all enthusiastically supportive of it. And, um, and the effective date, of course, is the 2000 election. Um, uh, as being the first time we'll hold every election that way.
4: 25 years after the historic 1996 U.S. Senate special election in Oregon, which was the first time a federal election was conducted entirely via mail ballots, Oregon and other states who have adopted the approach have improved it and made it an efficient way to conduct elections. Still, as the 2020 presidential election demonstrated, the misinformation and outright false claims about vote-by-mail persist. Jeff Mapes and Phil Keesling provide their observations of vote-by-mail today.
5: Well, you know, I think it's really proved its value, to be honest with you. Uh, Oregon consistently has a very high turnout. We had, generally speaking, we had high turnout related to the other states. But um, I think particularly it makes a difference in elections that may not normally be as high turnout. So I think it produces more turnout then, which is a good thing. I think it's turned out to be a very reliable and safe form
3: of voting. But it has forced this issue to the forefront, along with all of the misinformation, confusion, myths, misunderstandings that come with it that were part of the battle 25, 30, 40 years ago. Um, it is is fascinating to see the role reversals because it was a Republican idea where it was introduced here in Oregon and championed by Republicans over the opposition of Democrats. I spent more time as Secretary of State fighting Democrats on this issue than I, than I felt I did as Republicans, or maybe equal measure. You know, people are voting by mail by the tens of millions already. And have been for years. There were 33 million votes cast for president, and most of them probably went for Trump rather than for Clinton in the 2016 election that came in via mailed-out ballots. And you know, older voters in California and Florida and places you know like Colorado and 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 Illinois and and everywhere. I do think that COVID-19 has accelerated the serious consideration of that in a lot of these states, I think you will see a lot of them looking back and saying, why do we cling to a way of doing uh, election business that in some ways hasn't changed since the fifth century BC? When the good citizens of Athens would travel to the center of town and cast their ballots and votes on such weighty questions as whether Socrates should have to live or die or going to war with Sparta or whatever they did back in those days. But why we haven't, in a sense, revisited the, that, the business model, as it were, of that most basic of transactions in a small-D democratic society.
5: You know, we've, we've just gone through a lot in terms of elections in this state. You know, have discovered that, you know, in many... In many states, we have problems with providing enough voting booths on election days. You know, or enough machines. Machine voting has sort of turned out to be kind of problematical and raises questions. Um, and and but the one thing about vote by mail is that the the states that have done it for many years have continued to uh, to improve and and find new ways to do it and when i see the contortions
3: that get done to preserve the polling place as the center of the electoral universe when i see the hundreds of millions spent on a software enabled voting machine that uh puts software between me and marking the ballot. Well, it's a paper ballot now, at least, it's a record. Yeah, but can we really truly trust the software and make no mistake, even if we could trust it, people are gonna allege that you can't uh, trust it. Um, And the the billions that have been wasted on going down that particular rabbit hole of these electronic voting machines, because by gosh, we have to preserve the polling place and we have to get rid of hanging chads. Isn't there a better way to do things? Haven't we learned, even though COVID-19 was not the teacher we wanted, but haven't we learned that uh, just because we've done something a certain way for years, decades, even centuries, doesn't mean we always have to do it that way if there's a better approach. And the combination of an 8th century B.C. innovation, the Chinese invention of paper, and one of the proudest achievements of 18th century America Benjamin Franklin's introduction of the U.S. Postal Service. Um, uh, that combination today, I think, far better serves democracy than, uh, than, than what we've insisted on for low these many years.
4: For the campaign staff from 1996, who first blazed the trail with regard to running a campaign in the vote-by-mail system, the opinions are a little more mixed, although generally supportive. Former Widen staffer and current state representative, Brian Clem, is an enthusiastic supporter.
2: I think that, like, the verdict was in a long time ago. It's fantastic. It drives up turnout. It is so much easier for all of us to have some time, you know, to think it over. And the races you know, you fill out and then you, you know, read some more, call your friends, ask on the ones you don't. And then you make sure you get it in by the, you know, the, the Friday before. Otherwise, you're driving to drop somewhere. And it's just part of our lives now.
4: Gordon Smith's campaign manager, Dan Levy, is more nostalgic for the civic ritual of a polling place election.
1: But what what had happened by 1995 was that about 40, 45 percent of voters in Oregon were registered permanent absentee. So they were already voting by mail. So at that point, you could vote by mail if you chose and through permanent absentee, or you could vote at the ballot box uh, at the polling place, you know, if you if you preferred. Personally, I liked that system. I think it gave those that needed or wanted to vote at home the convenience of doing that and those that preferred the polling place, the ability to do that. Mm, I was sort of an opponent of vote by mail, not because I viewed it as susceptible to fraud so much. Um, as I did, I I, I I prefer the civic ritual of people voting on the same day, I prefer people not having the influence of a family member over their shoulder or in the same room. Um, I think people should be able to vote in the privacy uh, of their polling place and be able to lie to everybody, including their spouse and family members who they vote for. So that was kind of my sense of it then. It's been been improved and perfected over the years in Oregon. For Lori Hardwick,
4: who helped Gordon Smith raise millions of dollars for the 1996 elections— the cost remains a concern, although she still believes it's been good for participation.
0: And it's more expensive, far more expensive, so it's not good for campaign finance reform. But I do think vote-by-mail is good for, um, you know, voter participation. I mean, even, even when, you know, we have the high voter turnout that we had in this particular election um, across the country, right, um, even when you have high voter turnout— There's so many people in our country and our state that don't vote at all, right? Having, they might be registered, whatever, they just don't participate in elections. And so the more ability people have to do that, the better off, you know, I think that they are. And, um, you know, you have to just know what vote by mail is and what the system is and work your way through it just like everybody else. But there's no doubt it costs more money.
4: Brian Clem who went from running campaigns under Vote by Mail to being a candidate in them, recognizes the additional challenges it presents. But he's still a fan.
2: And so I I love it. you know. And I've had to now, being a legislator, I've had to run under it every single time. And yeah, it means there's a couple different election days. There's that third of people who vote right when they get it. Then they kind of, the procrastinators and me, who wait till the end. And then the bunch that votes at the end. And so you're kind of, timing your messaging and your GOTV to two different election days.
4: As Oregonians have voted under this system, their behavior has changed as well. This requires election officials to change their approach to ballot collection. Today in Oregon, the ballot drop box has become one of the most important mechanisms in the process. Levy, Hardwick and Kiesling discuss what they've observed about this changing behavior by voters.
1: And until this year, The trend has been over the last 20 years, 25 years in Oregon, people are holding their ballots longer and longer. Um, And so you're getting about 50% of the ballots returned, you know, from Friday to Tuesday through these drop boxes. So you're not really voting by mail anyway. Uh, You're voting at home, right? But you're not voting by mail.
0: I do wish, and I do think in some cases vote by mail isn't – great because you don't really get a full view of the candidates prior to casting your ballot. So it ends up being the highly partisan people who cast ballots early, I think, and then later, the more undecided and middle of the road people um, that are casting ballots at the end. But Oregonians, I think, have learned to wait a little bit to see how the race shakes out, because sometimes things will happen in a race and you've already voted.
3: Uh, it's much better to just put a lot more drop sites up and back in that 96 election i think we had 70 across the state five of them in multnomah county the most populous today we have over 300 because we've learned over the years that more drop sites are very inexpensive very easy very accessible why not make that return infrastructure as robust as you can i think we can still do even better um but uh Uh, That was a a key part of the campaign as well, because if people are getting into Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday worried about can I get it back in time if I mail it, well, you have options other than the mail. And it's to the point now that today most people actually use a Dropbox and take their ballot back in person. And it's why I don't use the term vote by mail anymore, because if you call our system an all vote by mail or a universal vote by mail, you're actually wrong. Because most people are, quote, voting, unquote, in person. They're taking their ballots back to a drop site or to an election office. And it's true in Colorado, Washington, and other states as well. So vote at home is a just more accurate term because that is literally what people do. They mark their ballots typically around kitchen and dining room tables, often with their the kids with them, if they have kids or other family members. And as I've said to people, it may have, people may miss the ritual, of traipsing to the polls, hoping that there's clear, bright autumn skies and crunch of leaves as opposed to rainy, soggy, windy, you know, muddy muck. Um, but they've created new rituals around, you know, often teaching their kids or, or working with other family members or friends and partners to sit around the table and discuss things, go to the Internet, look things up and and, and cast a more informed vote. But uh, we were definitely flying into uncharted territory in 1995-96 during the holiday season, deciding that, yeah, we're going to mail, I think, close to 2 million ballots out to people and uh, and, uh, have them vote in a way that didn't have any polling places.
4: The opportunity for fraud is an argument that vote-by-mail opponents continue to use. This despite overwhelming evidence that it is remarkably safe. Oregon's experience over the past 25 years is evidence of this. Dan Levy notes why security is good in a vote-by-mail system.
1: If you study vote-by-mail closely, and I have, um, you know, the security is on the intake when you send your ballot in. There's not a lot of security on the outbound mail. That's how... You know, people create. Well, there've been a bunch of ballots all sent to so and so's home, or the joke I used to make of the fraternity house phone room. You know, this is before people had cell phones, right? The tele, it's like a telephone booth filled with a bunch of ballots of people who've moved and left and all that. Well, that undermines seeing a bunch of ballots laying around or or put in somebody's mailbox or on a front porch. It that I can understand why that that creates uncertainty and a sense of fraud. But the, but the intake of the signature verification and the series that the counties go through is pretty well done here. And so um, there's not a lot of fraud that I've ever seen in vote by mail. So my arguments, again, have more have to do with civic rituals and privacy than it does fraud.
4: Brian Clem agrees and notes the bipartisan support for the system by Oregon's secretaries of state over the years.
2: I do worry that there's some tarnishment of the process alleged. And we went through some of that too. You know, you know, the the one guy called me from the media when I think I was working for Wyden or somebody and he's like, you know, we found 45 ballots at a fraternity that are just sitting there. Couldn't that be abused? And we're like, well, it could be, but did it get abused? Is there people who did it? You know, did we catch anybody? And from Dennis Richardson to Bev Clarno to Kiesling to others, everyone said no, there's no higher incidence of fraud and probably less, but certainly no different. And our turnout is way higher.
4: Phil Keesling is a little more blunt when debunking the fraud allegation.
3: This totally, um, uh, you know, spurious charge that it opens the door to massive fraud or even meaningful fraud or even attempted meaningful fraud, you know, it's, it's it just the evidence doesn't exist. And... I remember a clerk once asking me, as I raised the issue, Phil, have you ever stopped and asked yourself why crooks never counterfeit pennies? And I went, "Vicky, no, I've never asked myself that question. And she said, Phil, if you're willing to risk the jail time and do the crime, and a single ballot forged or coerced is a felony of up to five years, you're going to counterfeit twenties and hundreds. There are much smarter ways to try to steal an election by breaking other laws, campaign finance laws, et cetera, et cetera. And that has stuck with me because, yeah, there have been cases where people have tested the system and and deliberately committed fraud. I put a couple of them in jail during the '90s, including a county commissioner. Or I didn't put them in jail, but we prosecuted the case and and they were sentenced.
4: Oregonians are strong supporters of their system of voting. The state's success with the process has proven Phil Kiesling's early and vociferous support for it. That's why he's befuddled by its lack of support in more places.
3: Um, But I look back um, 25 years after this historic election and and scratch my head and uh, wonder why an idea that... uh, Uh, not only worked, but set a record for turnout. People forget we had 66 percent turnout of registered voters in a January special election for a U.S. Senate seat, a higher rate of turnout than most states had in their 2016 presidential race when it came to turnout in a very closely contested consequential race. And yet, 25 years after this election, um, the vast majority of of states won't even allow local governments who would prefer to run an election this way to run an election this way, much less major elections like primaries and, and generals.
4: Oregon political reporter Jeff Mapes sees it as the perfect system for today's society.
3: You know, we...
5: We're, we're just to that sort of 24-hour convenience society, and, and I think that just fits how people live today.
4: And Brian Clem was happy the system had such strong support and became entrenched when the 2020 general election was faced with the voting challenges presented by the pandemic.
2: But for, govern, for, for government and democracy, I think it's great. And it was really great in COVID times to already be set up and no one's debating whether it's you know, fraudulent or not in Oregon because we've been doing it so long that if it had been, that would have already come out.
4: Phil Kiesling also cannot comprehend the outright attempts to prevent the use of a process that has seen such overwhelming support.
3: And it's, it's sad to me um, that not that not every state is doing it. That was not going to ever be possible. we were not going to happen that way you were going to have states that were still going to use the polling place vote system. But it's sad to me that we have failed to do some of the most basic commonsensical things to make it as smooth as possible. We have states that uh, refuse to uh, uh, let county clerks mail out applications to people to try to get them to use this channel rather than show up at the polls and put more pressure on it. We have lawsuits challenging county election officials who want to simply put up secure drop boxes. No, you can't do that. We don't want that. We, we want to force people to have to mail it back. At the same time that, you know, the Postal Service is being attacked and, and defunded. One of the most simplest things we could do, but most states currently prohibit it, let people take their mail-out ballot back to a polling place. The polling place is open. I got my mail ballot. It's Monday or Tuesday. I'm worried about mailing it back. I've waited too long, Whatever. Like the ritual? I'll just take it back to my polling place. States like Ohio, just North Carolina, Georgia, they don't they don't allow it. It makes no sense. So that's what's sad to me is that we're we're not allowing uh in these unprecedented times common sense and 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 the judgment of election officials to prevail. We're still letting what the politicians think will be good for them. And um uh Uh, Now, things can still change. The National Vote at Home Institute, which I helped found and I'm chair of the board currently, we're pushing for those kinds of common sense changes. Um, And uh, I think we still have progress that we can make.
4: After his stint as Secretary of State, Phil Keesling went on to become director of the Center for Public Service at the Mark O. Hatfield School of Government at Portland State University. It's no surprise then that the focus of his arguments supporting vote at home boiled down to one thing, the importance of participation in a democracy.
3: There's a principle here. If we know you're an active registered voter, it's our obligation to mail you your ballot. It's your ballot. You can decide whether to cast it. You can decide how to return it. That's up to you. You have that choice. But we're gonna connect you with that ballot two to three weeks ahead of time And that's going to be automatic because you're entitled to it. And I can look at the most conservative Second Amendment, uh, you know, touting Republican in the eye. And I can look at the most liberal First Amendment uh, touting liberal in the eye. And I can say the same thing. It's about liberty and freedom. And it's about the most fundamental uh, transaction that we do in our small D democracy. And it's your ballot. You're entitled to it as a citizen who's registered to vote. And. So four other states and jurisdictions have, in a sense, answered the question we're going to automatically mail. Nevada, most of Montana, New Jersey, D.C., Vermont. They've all decided to copy, in a sense, the Oregon, Colorado, Washington, Utah, Hawaii, California model. The other 40, though, are forcing people to apply. And My argument was, by the time that I became a full-fledged supporter, is that if you believe at the end of the day in democracy, and You should not be confusing a particular ritual of democracy, however familiar it is, with what the essence of democracy is, which is participation. And if you're afraid that higher turnout and more people participating is going to hurt the causes that are near and dear to your heart, then uh, we've got a much deeper problem uh, than, uh, than we realize. And uh, it's fascinating, 25 years later, to see how a lot of those roles have now reversed.
4: Thank you for listening to the first season of Revisit the Moment. We hope you've enjoyed it and will join us for future seasons. Revisit the Moment is produced by me, Kevin Curry. Audio production and design is by Matt Tibbs. Our research assistant is Elijah O'Brien. We record at Linfield University in the studios of the Linfield Podcast Network. Remember to subscribe to revisit the moment so you don't miss out on any episodes. And if you enjoyed our work, give us a rating and a review.